It is 10 o'clock on Wednesday, and this is Dr. Stu's podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, and welcome to another uh, podcast. This is number 194, and I'm a longtime advocate for birth choices, and I'm a practicing home birth obstetrician. I've been around now for 35 years since my residency. And uh, usually I'm here with the best co-host in the business, that would be uh, Bliss Young. And Bliss had a birth this morning and we're waiting to see whether she's going to chime in or not. So we'll see if she she comes in with us. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you can reach me at askdrstuartgmail.com and a lot of you did this past week. I've got a lot of emails. And so we're gonna get to some of those. We're gonna shut my phone off. And you can find me at birthinginstincts.com. You can find Bliss at uh, uh, birthingblissmidwifery.com and you can write her at uh, bliss at birthingbliss uh, and on Instagram she's uh, birthingbliss so you'll find her and me I think you probably know that by now you can find us on your podcast app your smartphone and on Facebook uh, we always link to uh, the Dr. Stu podcast page on Facebook as well as our own uh, Dr. Stuart com uh, website so I also started the recently a uh, Rumble, uh, which is a new sort of alternative to YouTube channel. I've posted one video, so I'll just, I'm going to try to add content to that as we go along. And uh, so good morning. I'm wearing my LA Kings shirt today, not because hockey has started yet, but because there was hockey on last night, live hockey from, uh, I think from Europe. It's the uh, International Juniors Tournament and the United States won. Last night's very exciting, and some Kings prospects are on there, so that always gets me really excited that we're getting closer and closer to getting back to reality. Um, I also had a call from somebody named Emily, and I wrote it. I wrote down to discuss Emily's call, but for the life of me, cuckoo, I cannot remember uh, what the call was about, Emily. So, if you're listening today or another day, please let me know um, whether or not. That is something that you would be uh, willing to email me or call me back again so I can remember what your call was about. Okay. So last week, you know, we talked about a lot of stuff. The title of the podcast was um, uh, Birthing People, I believe. And uh, I got a lot of great feedback on the C.S. Lewis um, uh, essay. And I've read it to several people. And every time I read it, I still get choked up especially where he talks about the thing about bathing your children and having a drink with your friends and not letting one disaster after another get us down. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about some COVID-19 news and stuff like that related to what we do uh, sometime later in the podcast today. I wanted to first get started. By the way, I'm doing my own uh, um, editing, not editing, but producing today. So I've got to constantly be checking the message board. So welcome, uh, Midan, if I'm pronouncing that right, Jennifer. Um, we're still waiting on Bliss, as I said. We'll see if she shows up. She's probably asleep. So from uh, uh, last week's discussion about birthing people, the Harvard tweet that insisted on uh, not calling birthing, birthing women, but called it birthing people, um, Alana writes me, she says, where will it end? If I want to self-identify as a cat or a rhinoceros, can I then demand that everyone use the term birthing organism? Um, I understand that Bliss wants to be kind and not add pain to the lives of LGBTQ, et cetera, people. We all do. 
We birth workers are compassionate nurturers, that is absolutely true, who deeply care about our clients and all birthing people. However, political correctness is demanding more strongly every day that all must comply with whatever the most fashionable thinking is in the areas and those who will not pay the, uh, is in these areas and those who will not will pay the price. This is the opposite of tolerance. And I've said that before, you guys have heard me say that before, that, you know, when, when everybody in the school needs to, uh, to uh, accommodate or tolerate one person who's transgender, then all the other girls in the school, theoretically, um, they're, they're um, being intolerant if they don't, but then if they say, I don't like that, then no one's tolerant of them. And it's the same sort of thing here. So she says, recently I observed a witch hunt on a Facebook group. People's past posts were being scrutinized for any hint of racism and which was later extended to any evidence of politically incorrect anti-LGBTQ thought. The judge and jury were all self-appointed and could interpret the data at their own discretion according to their own biases. The punishment in this case was removal from the group and social sanction, to, an, to what extent they don't know. In society at large, the consequences for not going along with the insanity of insisting a man can have a baby may eventually become even more serious. So your point is well taken, Alana. Um, this, this isn't going to end well, because this change of the language is not going to suddenly stop uh, and say, yes, we've accomplished all our goals, now we're done. And uh, we can now move on to raising our children and having a pint and throwing some darts and having a good time. No, it's never gonna be that way. You can always find the next thing. Um, she says, I hope you don't, that Dr. Stu, you won't get too much flack over your comments in today's podcast, which will be last week's and today's podcast. I for one agree with what you said. Well, thank you, Alana. But, and I did write Alana back a brief response. I wrote, hi, Alana, thanks for sharing your thoughts. Frankly, I don't really care about being considered a Neanderthal. Um, labels say more about the person labeling generally than they do about the person that they're labeling. Um, I, wear, I wear my um, ideas proudly on my chest, including my LA Kings t-shirt, uh, when, and when it comports with common sense and traditional values. Right? So I agree 100% with your take on the PC police and their purge. Appeasement never works. And only, and I'm not the first one to say this, everybody who pays any attention to what's going on in America right now and other parts of the Western world knows that appeasement never works. People that will, didn't say anything wrong, they get, they get uh, bombarded by the Twitter mob and then they apologize for one, thinking that it might have offended somebody or they hurt somebody when they said there was nothing wrong. And once you apologize, you're suddenly not going to be their friend. They're still going to come after you. So appeasement never works and only encourages greater incursions to where they will eventually find something to attack the appeasers, which is, um, it's, it's, it's all through history. We don't even, people don't learn history anymore. All right. This is, this is, this is like, if they just taught basic history, whether it's even 19th century history, 20th century history, Greek history, Roman history, it all, they all sort of, tumble slowly downhill to where they reach a point where the hill gets really steep and then these things collapse. And we're possibly very close to, um, to a tipping point here in this country. Morning, Natalie. Um, okay, so I got a couple things. Uh, first of all, I tried to put them in order, but my mind sometimes goes all over the place, so we'll see where we go. 
my main theme today is going to talk about uh, the title of today's podcast is Different Species. And I'll leave that hanging for a second as to what that means, but we'll get to it. Um, I hope to gather with my family um, uh, in a couple of days, which will be Christmas. This podcast will be posted probably after that. So Merry Christmas to everybody. Uh, I hope it's. I hope you are spending time with your family. For those of you in open states, you lucky dogs, um, you can gather without any sort of sneaking around. But uh, here in California, I hope pretty much everyone breaks the the restrictions that are put upon you, like our leaders are doing, breaking their restrictions, um, and get with your family because you know the older people who you're trying to protect, you know, give them the option. All right. They may want to see their grandchildren more importantly than they want to protect themselves. Or maybe they're really old and it may be their last Christmas. And the idea of being alone, that's just not something that I would like to see. Um, I would like to see be the, their last Christmas. It's just not right. So we all took, my family and I, uh, we all took our COVID testing. And uh, I got a negative COVID test, which which is good, I guess, but I was sort of hoping that at some point I would be positive. Um, not because I'm a glutton for punishment, but because I trust my immune system. My immune system is, I got a pretty healthy gene pool for my parents and I feel like my immune system is pretty strong. I mean, every year or so, every other year, I might get the flu for a couple of days, but I rarely have missed work in the 30, 35 years that I've been in office. And when I was a resident, I remember working uh, one time covering UCLA. I was an intern. We rotated through UCLA and I had a fever of 102, 103 and I was on the ward, uh, on the OB ward. The nurses put me in a room. They brought me anti-pyretic uh, um, drugs. They brought me fluids. They kept me in bed. They took really good care of me. And only when I needed to come to catch a baby or do something that I needed to do, they they came and got me and took me out. They took really good care of me. But that's the only time in, in my entire residency that I remember being sick. And uh, I don't remember missing school for being sick very often. So, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. Anyway, I tested negative. So I get to see my family. And I'm very excited about that. Uh, okay. So then I got a letter um, from my friend uh, Jamie in Hawaii. And uh, it's a letter that has to do with mask wearing. And I think most of you at this point know how I feel about that. I go hiking. Uh, last weekend, I went hiking three days in a row in the same trail system. And in, in Calabasas, California, trail was like a road. It was really wide. And 85, 90% of people on the trail, many people running, many people on their mountain bikes, all wearing masks. Very few were not wearing masks. And it just, it blows my mind. Blows my mind. There's no data to support wearing a mask. You are not being kind to somebody wearing a mask. You are virtue signaling that you are in fear or that you, you know, it, it, it's, it's it, people who are sick should decide whether they want to wear a mask or not. And this is what Jamie writes about. So she says, hey there, Stu. Of course, you know, I always love to chime in while walking my dog and listening to your podcast. In the morning, and Jamie's uh, on, the, on Oahu, I think, in Hawaii, so probably nice to take a walk there. I had a very interesting conversation with one of my clients last night. She traveled to California, oh, poor thing, for Thanksgiving and, con and contracted the coronavirus from a relative. One by one, the, fa 
One by one, the family members, I don't mean to laugh, but the family, this way she writes, the family members all dropped like flies and Thanksgiving was canceled. I wonder how many days she came before Thanksgiving. That's interesting. She took her mother and her son to a hotel to get away from the rest of the family. Uh, they, they ate live, nu nutritious, dense foods, getting rest, drinking plenty of water, high doses of vitamin C and zinc. And the three of them had mild cold symptoms for about three to four days. The other family members depended on medications to soothe their symptoms, but did not change their diet, did not supplement with immune boosters. On average, their symptoms were worse and lasted twice as long. What she came to the conclusion of, however, was the general population mask wearing. She would need to go over to the laundry room, the ice chest, or drive up to do contactless pickup from Whole Foods, Target, or wherever else for the next couple of weeks. And she realized that due to the fact that everyone is wearing a face mask versus those that actually needed them because they were sick, she was treated no differently than the general population. She brought up the fact that those who test positive should be the ones who are wearing the masks in order to distinct themselves from those who are healthy human beings. It's an interesting thought. Being in Hawaii, as we have a high density of Asian population and prior to the coronavirus outbreak, if someone in their population were ill, they would wear a mask if they needed to go in public. This signaled to the healthy population that perhaps they should keep their distance. Now everyone is wearing masks and folks are being desensitized. Well, true, they are being desensitized. Um, like the hiking trail, you know, people will be walking without their mask, they'll see you coming, they'll pull their mask up as if the air particles and the breeze and the wind and stuff are going, they're going to catch COVID there. I mean, it's, it's, they don't look in the eye contact. Some people turn their back. It's having a very tough social effect. And we've talked other times, and I'm sure many of you have too, about the effect on what newborns and toddlers are doing when they're seeing everybody around them wearing masks. They can't learn from facial cues and facial expressions. Um, I don't know what babies think when grandma and grandpa, you know, are wearing masks. You know, everybody around them other than mom and dad, maybe even, even maybe mom and dad depends. Um, I found her realization to be quite intriguing and thought I would share it. Okay. So Jamie. Yeah. So what's the solution? Right. Well, I have a good solution, but it will never happen. And that's in 2022. Okay. First of all, we have to, we have to legitimize our voting system. We have to be sure that there's no cheating or fraud in our voting system ever again. Well, yeah, just it's got to be one person, one vote. The only reason to put in laws like no voter ID and no signature verification. Hang on, I got to let somebody in. No voter ID, no signature verification. The only reason to do that: uh, mass mail-in voting to people who don't request it. Votes going to people who've already moved. Votes going to people who have died. Uh, the only reason to do that is to cheat, okay? There is no other reason to do that. All through our history and in most other countries, people are somehow able to vote on, on election day or request an absentee ballot where there's some sort of proof of who you are, all right? So once we clear up the voting rolls and we're sure that no one's cheating, then God damn it, next, on the 2022, vote all these people out of office. Anybody who's supporting the continued lockdown, anybody who supports this crazy, crazy stimulus. By the way, 
this COVID relief bill that was just sort of, I guess it's on the president's desk or something right now, and they're dickering over the amounts and stuff like that. Please take a moment to read. Don't read 5,583 pages of the bill, which they gave them four hours to read. And then what's really scary about that is only 50 out of 400 and some, or how many is it? 300 and some? Yeah, out of 358, I think, um, uh, Congress people, and out of 100 senators, only six senators voted against a bill that no one had read, okay? That's completely filled with pork. So I know I'm going off topic a little bit, but this is where my mind goes. So don't, you know, these people don't deserve our vote. They don't deserve to be running our country. They are, they are not the best and the brightest, okay? They, and, and term limits should be, uh, should be something we should rediscuss again. But I don't know, once they've taken control of the government, I don't know how you change something if they don't want to change. But you can't keep reelecting these people. That's the definition of insanity. Okay, if New York reelects Bill de Blasio, and if you love him, fine, tune me out. I can't imagine any on my, anybody on my podcast loves Bill de Blasio. If you love Gavin Newsom, vote for him, all right? But if you don't, don't vote for him just because he's got a D behind his name or an R behind their name or whatever reason. Vote them out of office. Call them. Tell them that you, you were angry and you're not going to take it anymore because they don't have your best interest at heart. And it was really, really, really clear by the, the stimulus bill that just came out where they're giving, you know, tens of millions of dollars to Pakistan for gender studies or uh, for Jordan to build a border wall. Well, <laughs> well, they want to tear down our own border wall and they're giving $600 $600 to every American, uh, I guess, above 18, or I don't exactly know how it works. So people have been out of work for months. There's like 100 million people out of work in the United States, and we're giving $600. So by the way, I, um, somebody else did the math, and they multiplied $600 by 300 million people, and it came out to be like $2 billion, or $200 billion, and the relief bill is for $900 billion. So... Just take a moment and ask yourself, well, where did the other $700 billion go? And then you go and look at where, that, where it went. And if you're not furious, this is a COVID relief bill. And they've got everything in there from the Kennedy Center again to every little piece of pork or, you know, special interest has got their pound of flesh to do this or do that. You know, we're going to study fish hatcheries in the Gulf of Mexico. What does that have to do with coronavirus relief? Nothing, nothing, but the fish hatcheries, that, that'll be good. So anyway, okay, I ranted on that. I got a little bit more rant on that. I might as well get to it real quick, so we're out of it. Um, my friend Jennifer Margulis, who's a co-author of the book, The Vaccine-Friendly Plan with Paul Thomas, who we did discuss last week and what he's going through with the medical board from Oregon. Uh, he did, by the way, Paul Thomas, I saw after our podcast, he did an interview on Dell Bigtree's thehighwire.com. So I also got to do an interview with Dell about a month ago, and that's on his website. So you can go to highwire.com and find the interview with Paul Thomas and find out a little bit more about why they're picking on him. And you'll, you know, you, when you only hear one side of the story, you don't know the story. So you need to hear, what it, because they make everything sound bad. We talked about gunny sacking and, and uh, sham peer review and all that stuff. And this is what's going on. This guy's published some really good data. He's trying to help people. His patients love him. Does he have a few people who've complained? Of course they do. We all do. 
Um, so those are the ones that are put in the newspaper. Those are the ones the medical board releases in their complaint. You know, 10,000 people love him. One person doesn't like him. So the one, and they want him out. So the one person doesn't like him complaint gets put in the, into the, um, gets released to the press. Anyway, Jennifer points out something interesting. I don't know the, the details, but she put, she tweets eating pork goes against the tenets of Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, kosher and Islam. Pork is unclean, so, so the Bible says. But porcine gelatin is used in many vaccines. And that's all she says. Okay. So what do you do with that? I mean, can people re, uh, refuse the vaccine on a religious basis? Uh, I don't know. Just putting, putting that out there for you to think about. And then um, this, is, this group, the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, don't you like our, our high-tech visuals? on Dr. Stu's podcast. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, they're a great group for protecting physicians who, who, who represent private patients, not big corporations or industries or, or hospitals or um, HMO type organizations. These are a group of independent physicians. Sort of like I wish that there was a group that represented independent restaurants. There ought to be one, and I'm not talking about the Chamber of Commerce, but uh, independent restaurants so that they can all get together and say, listen, we're just on Tuesday, let's just all open up. Every, every restaurant in Los Angeles County just open up. Now I know it's hard to do that because you have to buy food and you have to prep and you have to have your staff there, but do it as a, a symbolic thing, right? The, the state can't possibly come and close you all down. It can't, it's gonna make the news. They can't take away all your liquor license. And if they do, fine, then, then you'll have a class action lawsuit you can make, but you make waves and you put pressure on these people who feel no pressure and, uh, to do these edicts and not even follow their own edicts. Um, my daughter and I had dinner on Sunday night and we went over to the Pineapple Hill Grill, which was uh, where the woman made a viral, absolutely viral um, uh, YouTube video about the fact that her restaurant was shut down, but in the same parking lot, they had a setup for a movie crew. Um, and so they opened for the first time on Sunday. So my daughter and I went and got takeout. And when I was checking out, I said, you want credit card or cash? And they like, oh my God, they almost started crying. Oh, cash, we want cash as king, we need cash. We're so desperate for cash. I said, okay, fine. I paid him with cash, I gave a big tip. And if all of us could um, get out there and support your local non, not, not chain restaurant, but your local private restaurant, get some takeout food. Even if you don't want it, give it away, but just spend some money in these restaurants if you have the money to spend. Okay, well, they point out in their um, little thing, I just took a, a snippet of it, that the, the COVID relief bill was 5,593 pages, and they were, given, uh, they were given four hours to read it. Okay. This is very similar to the Affordable Care Act bill, too. Is they, it came, and this has more pages than that. I think this is the biggest bill ever written. And um, that means you have to read about 1,000 pages an hour. How many of you can read a thousand pages an hour. Well, of course, nobody read the bill. Nobody read the bill and yet only 53 House members and six senators didn't vote for it. So how, how do 300 and some House members and 94 senators vote for something that only gives the American people 600 bucks and costs $900 billion and you don't read it? 
how do you how do you look at yourself in the mirror? How do you expect us as your constituents to take that? And of course, the answer is they don't care. They don't care. The rules don't apply to them. Otherwise, we wouldn't continue to catch these people breaking the rules that they think that they instill for us because they don't believe them. All right. Cash is being burned and the debt ballooned by Congress on pet projects, foreign programs, universities, expanding the federal government. Four billion is being spent on an international vaccine alliance while barely nickels go to working Americans. Meanwhile, early treatment for COVID-19 patients is nowhere mentioned in the bill. Okay, so what is early treatment for COVID-19 patients? Well, if you've been following me a little bit and some other people online, you know that they're talking about hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, all right? There's still this media tech ban on discussing this as an alternative, and not even an alternative, but something to be taken either preventatively or what we call prophylactically, or something to be taken very early when symptoms start, because there's very good data. I don't care, you know, I've talked to family members and friends who say, well, it's been debunked, it's been debunked, it's you know, debunked means that it, it doesn't fit with the with the um, ideology and the and the the method that the left wants. I'm saying the left, but the people, because I I do believe this is sort of leftist stuff, but I, that the people who control us want to take it doesn't follow the party line, and so it becomes debunked uh, or fact checking. By the way, fact checking is not fact checking. Fact-checking is a way of, of another misuse of the language to make it seem like it's been debunked, I guess back to debunked. But fact-checking is where um, it, it doesn't comport with what they wanted to say, so it doesn't fit with our facts, therefore we're going to put a warning on it. I mean, there are still things all over YouTube and all over Twitter that have been proven to be lies that don't have a fact-check thing on it. But anything about... Uh, hydroxychloroquine is going to be, and even I've had that on my Facebook page. I've had warnings put on my Facebook page because it talked about vaccines or I might have mentioned hydroxychloroquine, stuff like that. So uh, there's nothing in this bill about that. And think of the, the number of hospitalizations we might be able to prevent. If people call their doctor and said, you know, I'm feeling the sniffles and they go, say, go get a COVID test. Oh, it's positive. You know, I'm a little achy. Well, let, here, let me put you on uh, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin and zinc. And maybe maybe we can keep some of these people from going to the hospital and some of the data from around the world, um, including something in the, uh, I think the, uh, uh, the New England Journal maybe, or, or some other prestigious journal which wasn't retracted, like the Lancet story was retracted, um, but also from other countries in South America and Europe that have shown that there's been some good effect to that. So if I had a family member who tested positive for COVID and was early, but you know, was older, was at, at a risk population, I would so put them on or suggest to them, I mean, I would give them informed consent like we always do uh, about that option, okay? Uh, there are also in this bill new burdens, and this is the part that the AAPS is concerned about. There are new burdens on practicing physicians and patients. Of course, you're never gonna know that because it's never gonna be told to you. No one's ever read about it, except obviously some of their their lawyers probably did. There are hundreds of pages of the misnamed, quote, no surprises act, unquote, made it into the legislation over objections of hundreds of thousands of Americans. Now this is a separate act, the no surprises act, 
is a completely separate act where they want to have um, uh, transparency in billing. And, I, and I'm sort of for that, except nothing that the government ever does is a simple, okay, like have a menu, like you go to a restaurant, you know what you're paying before you order your food. So before you go to your doctor's office, here's what it's going to cost for your analysis. Here's what it's going to cost for physically. Here's what it's going to cost for an EKG and know ahead of time what it costs. I think that's reasonable. But then why does the, the No Surprises Act take thousands of pages as well? So that's been sort of tabled uh, for a little bit right now, but they obviously pulled some of their favorite pet projects out of that and they went ahead and um, stuck it into this bill. Okay, so one of the provisions hidden in the 5,593 pages is section 112 of the No Surprises Act. It would apparently require all physicians, even direct pay physicians, who do not file claims to the insurance companies to provide expected billing and diagnosis codes at least three days in advance of the service. I'm not sure how that's going to work. So a woman calls up to make an annual checkup with you and, and she calls and she wants to come in tomorrow. Well, you can't come in tomorrow because I have to give you this coded information, which we don't use and you won't use anyway. And then we have to wait three days. I mean, I know that they're thinking about some specific thing where people are, are getting misled, but again, this is all stage one thinking. They're not thinking, well, what will this do in other situations? Um, this simply adds more red tape that will increase costs, especially for physicians and patients who are working together outside of the insurance company control, like a lot of us do in the home birthing world. Um, as we explained in a, an alert letter last week from the No Surprises Act, the legislation will prohibit balanced billing by non-contracted physicians in all emergencies. So say someone has some crappy ins HMO insurance or something and you don't take insurance and they show up in the ER or in your office and you have to do an emergency something to them and your fee is $500 for that, okay? And the insurance company decides that they're gonna pay $82.97 for that, okay? You're not allowed to bill for the other $417.08, right? Even though you're not contracted with the insurance company. Okay, and even though maybe you have a posted menu on the door when they, people can come in and see how much you charge, you're not gonna be allowed to balance bill, all right? Who does this benefit? doesn't benefit the patient or the doctor. They say it benefits the patient, but it's just going to lead to rationing and it's going to lead to, um, you know, more of what's called socialized medicine where people will be waiting longer lines and whatever. And that's where it's going to go. That's where all this stuff always, always, always ends up going. Okay. Let's see. I got a couple. Well, should we get to, uh, let's hold off on this one. All right. And let's get to the topic of the day. Okay, hang on, get Jennifer's out of here. Uh, right. So, by the way, I think, um, let's see if I can do comments. Where, where, where would be comments, reactions? No, that's reaction. Where do I do comments? Chat, participants. No, that's not what I want. Speaker view. Right. Well, no, I lost my comments. Oh, there we are. How can I get you off the other side here? Oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, sorry about this, people. Um, enable waiting room, got it. Okay. 
I just did something. I don't know what I just did. So okay, let's see if anybody has a question here. Mindon says she's a midway midwifery student. Um, she likes our podcast. Well, thank you. Um, again, I, I just I just kind of shoot from the hip, whatever comes across my my mind during the week, and then you know you guys send in topics. Um, and I, yeah, I agree that the LADA is going to be an interesting uh, interesting situation in Los Angeles. How do I make this bigger? Oh, that covers the whole screen. I can't do that. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, how do I need to? Know, how do I get to let people in here? What happened? There we go. Huh. Well, now I lost. How do I, I don't know if anybody's going to try to get in now. Shoot. Okay, well, let's just minimize that. Okay, sorry about that. A little technical difficulty there. I'm learning. Zoom is new to me. Oh, wait a sec, did I mute myself? Oh no, that's Jennifer that's muted, okay. <laughs> I should have like a little sidekick behind me or somebody with the same screen sharing it. Bliss, where are you? Oh my God. All right, so um, here's a question that I wanted, that I got from uh, read, uh, a listener named Amy from Minneapolis, my old hometown. And she writes, part of the appeal of your podcast is that I feel like we must be kindred spirits in many ways. Perhaps that is the topic for another day since I think this note is long enough. Uh, anyway, you shared a letter on your most recent podcast that mentioned a desire for more information on preeclampsia, which was a good reminder to me that I should ask you about low-dose aspirin prophylaxis when there's risks of preeclampsia. Do you counsel your patients to take low-dose aspirin when they are at risk for preeclampsia? If so, under what circumstances? Do you recommend anything else in addition to aspirin? Okay. Well, briefly, um, aspirin is kind of one of those things where the risk-benefit ratio leans heavily toward the benefit and almost no risk. So um, I think that, oh, I know if anybody else is trying to enter. Um, I think that, uh, you know, if you've developed preeclampsia, taking a baby aspirin is probably has no harm whatsoever. And we do suggest it to a lot of our clients. Some of them take it, some of them don't. Because I, I can't really give them um, detailed data on how effective it is, but it, there is data out there that says it lowers the risk. And since there's very little risk to taking, a and we're talking about one baby aspirin a day, not baby Tylenol, not baby Advil, it has to be baby aspirin. So yes, I would probably recommend that women who've had preeclampsia before, um, take a baby aspirin. Fertility issues, we also give it sometimes too. She says, I know you can't make a recommendation specific to me, but I wanted to include a bit about my situation as background. In 2018, I had a postpartum preeclampsia, which was diagnosed five days after giving birth to twins at 33 weeks. So five days postpartum preeclampsia, very unusual. I had spontaneous labor and was eight centimeters dilated when I checked in after arrival at the hospital. Fetus one was breech. So, a C-section was ordered. Mm. Mm. I had already had one previous vaginal birth. Mm. She's a multip. Uh. Okay. Well, this is going to get to me where I want to go with this. But today I am 21 weeks pregnant with a singleton. It's her third pregnancy. 
According to ACOG, I have one high risk factor for preeclampsia, which is her previous history, and one moderate risk factor for that I turned 35 in November. Okay. So Amy, I'm laughing because 35, and I wrote you this back, 35 does, is not a risk factor. It's everybody, let's get rid of that, okay? Let's get rid of that 35 thing. It's gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. It has no bearing even on genetics these days because genetic testing is so easy, all right? But 35 is an arbitrary number picked long ago when it had to do with risks of miscarriage and amniocentesis. It has nothing to do with the day. People say that to you. If an, a doctor says that to you, tells me that the doctor is not thinking deeply. It's a doctor who's just regurgitating data without thinking about it. And I'm guilty of that as well. Um, speaker view. No, that's not what I want. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. She certainly doesn't take any medication. And okay. Here's what I wrote here, and then I want to get into my discussion today because I think. Uh, how do I exit the screen? No, no. Yeah, because we're going to get short on time. Um, I said, Amy, how's my hometown these days? Because I wrote that because she's from Minneapolis and it's not this town that I left 38 years ago. I do not think age is of any significance worthy of consideration and thus anxiety. That you had one singleton pregnancy without incident and then had postpartum preeclampsia with a twin pregnancy is unusual, but twins are a different animal. Without knowing more history, it would be improper for me to predict future likelihood of recurrence. In a future pregnancy, there is little known harm in some support supportive data on baby aspirin prophylactically. In the second trimester, your practitioner could check for uterine artery notching by ultrasound. I am sorry to hear that your only option was a cesarean for your twins, but that is one reason I do what I do. And we will discuss this on a future podcast. Well, that's today. Thanks for listening. Okay, so this past week, um, I had two breach, two breach deliveries. All right, the first, Mama was a Gravita 3 Parrot 2, and she had a bicornate uterus, but her first two babies were head down, and she has a history of precipitous labors. Both of her first two labors were under a couple of hours. So her third baby has been breached now, and she's at term, and uh, we knew that when she went into labor, it was going to go really quickly, uh, but she was breached. She wanted to have a breech baby. She met all the criteria. And we've talked about that many times on the podcast, all the criteria for a vaginal breech birth. So it was, it was a thumbs up and uh, we got to her. She, she, I think she broke her bag of waters. We headed right over to her house. And I think within two hours she was in the tub, uh, leaning on the side on all fours. And she delivered a breech baby unassisted. And I did one vaginal exam with her. Um, when I got there, she was about five to six centimeters just to confirm the position of the breach. And it's funny because she told me that that was the first vaginal exam in labor that she's ever had. So in three babies, she's had one vaginal exam. And that's the way it should be. As Bliss said in a podcast a couple of times ago, she said, how many vaginal exams have you done on a tiger at seven centimeters? All right. You wouldn't you wouldn't be doing vaginal exams on any other mammal, so we you don't you don't really need them uh, on women who are laboring normally because you can just tell by the way they're laboring and the sounds they're making how they're doing. 
anyway, it was a beautiful baby. The baby was in perfect breech position. The baby did all the cardinal movements. You know, it, it was frank breech. It came out uh, left sacrum transverse, rotated uh, tum to bum. The legs popped out, came to the umbilicus, sat there for, you know, maybe less than a minute until she felt like she needed to give another push. She gave another push. So we could see the cleavage come down. We could see the two elbows. And then with one last push, the elbows and the head came out. The baby came into the water. And mom picked it up, brought it up herself. And all Monica, the midwife, and I did was lean on the end of the tub on the outside and just stare and watch. Unfortunately, no video. Everything happened really quickly. But it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And this woman, in other settings around the world, would have probably been coerced a week ago to have an elective scheduled C-section, even though she'd had two previous vaginal deliveries. Or if she'd come into the hospital in labor, even with a history of precipitous labors, they would have probably tried, maybe even given her tributylene to stop her contraction so they have time to do a, a C-section on this baby. And this sort of thing, not only is it cruel and unethical and wrong, but it's just horrendous to see this kind of thing going on and things, be, and things being taught where, you know, you're being told that this is your only choice. This is your only option. Oh, and by the way, I remember Emily's phone call. So Emily, thank you. Emily told me that she has twins right now who is vertex breach and she has a doctor who she loved, who's delivered her other two vaginal delivery children, but he was not trained in a breech second twin and therefore suggested that she have a C-section or ethically did the right thing and offered her to, to go find a second opinion of somebody who could possibly do a vaginal delivery for her, which is what she's looking for now. And we had a Zoom meeting recently and she's looking at her options. But Again, this is the idea that a second twin breach in a multip, or even a primate for that matter, um, that OBs won't do is one of those things that just drives me crazy and it motivates me to do the podcast, to do the breach seminars, to continue to advocate for what we're doing. So we had this one multip breach delivery, which went <clears throat> boom, and out came the baby. And then a couple of days later, I had a primate breach who I had never met before, who I got called by the midwife in labor for what we all call in the in our in our professions a surprise breach. They thought that she was head down all along, and then she gets the, the midwife gets to the house as a vag exam, and she's nine centimeters, and there's a butt there. And so the only option in California that that midwife has is to take her to the hospital if I'm not available. And I'm generally not available for, for breaches in labor with people I've never met because. I haven't had a chance to screen them, to develop a relationship, to see if they meet the criteria for breach delivery. But I was really right in the area. So I came over, did a quick ultrasound. Being that she's a primate, I knew she wasn't going to go that quickly. And if they go that quickly, then I don't worry because it's going to, it's going to come out. Um, and the baby's head was flexed. The estimated fetal weight was seven and a half to eight pounds. Uh, heart rate was great. Uh, Frank breach. No anomalies, nine centimeters. Yeah, okay. A great couple. Um, great couple. Already had the home birth mindset, which made it easy to stay. So um, I stayed. And, and this was about nine in the morning, and she was starting to make pushing sounds by 10. 
And we let her do um, uncoached pushing for about an hour, hour and a half, but her breathing was not coordinated and she wasn't pushing really effectively at all, even though she felt like she had to and she was having a lot of back pain. So we decided to help her with some coach pushing and we changed positions. And over the next two to three hours, we tried sitting on the toilet, the birth stool on her side, a lithotomy position in all fours. And she pushed and pushed and pushed. And after almost three and a half hours of really decent pushing, uh, she was getting exhausted. Oh, hang on. That's how it works. There we go. Um, she was getting exhausted and uh, we decided we needed to transport to the hospital. And fortunately, we have a good guy at one of the hospitals that was across town, but worth driving to. And she had a very, um, uh, as enjoyable can be, a cesarean section. And the baby was with them the whole time. And the husband was ecstatic. And, and they were, you know, as, as satisfied as somebody could possibly be who got a C-section for breach, knowing that they actually needed it. Okay, they needed the C-section as opposed to um, the woman who has the twins now that I just mentioned, who had a C-section for her first pregnancy for breach without any options. Then two V-backs, I think, maybe even three V-backs. Yeah, three V-backs. And now I was pregnant with twins and the doctor doesn't know how to, is, is concerned about the baby B being breached. So we have two things going on here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time about the lack of training because we've already talked about that. What I want to talk about is really the difference between primaparas and multiparas. And they really are different species. There's no question in my mind, statistically, knowledge, how they labor, uh, the ease for us as a practitioner, generally the ease for the mother, um, they really are different. And by different species, I mean, it's just a way of, of saying it so I can make it clear that there's two categories. And for instance, on statistics, you look at the success rate of multips in a home birthing world, head down multips, 99 point plus uh, percent success rate. Home birth primips, about an 80% home success rate and maybe a 90% overall success rate because about the 20% that end up getting transported 10, I mean, at least half of them are going to be able to deliver vaginally because they're head down and they can get an epidural and Pitocin and vacuum or whatever they need. So the success rate is still over 90%, but you're talking about a 99% success rate at home versus an 80% success rate at home. And that's, or maybe a little bit higher. And then with breach, it's really similar. With my multiple breaches so far in my home world, 100% success rate. With my primate breaches, an 80% success rate. All right. And of the 20% that get sent to the hospital, all of them get C-sections now. So the C-section rate for primate breaches is 20%. The C-section rate for multiple breaches is zero in my practice so far. Okay. Let's talk about twins. The success rate for a multiple with twins, no matter what position baby A or B are in, as long as baby A is what I call a stable longitudinal lie, and they meet the other criteria about growth and about um, um, uh, making it to 35 and a half, 36 weeks, that sort of thing, but I'm not talking about that. Success rate is 98 plus percent because I've had one multip twin mom out of 48 or 49 multip twins um, that ended up getting stuck at seven centimeters with breach breach twins. 
Uh, other than that, I've had 100% success rate. Whereas with primate twins, I've only had a 64% success rate at home. That's still two out of three. And of those 64, if they all went to the hospital, they probably 80 to 90% of them would have had a cesarean section anyway. So we're doing good work. But you, 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 look, at, you look at how multips and primips labor differently. They're, they have different life experiences. They, they, they're, 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 it's just, it's, and as a practitioner, anybody who's a practitioner listening knows the difference. When you get a multip client, you're like, yeah, right. Because you know it's going to be generally a much easier case. My problem lies with this, right? In the medical world, I don't believe that they look at them differently. I don't believe that, that somebody who's had one previous cesarean section or somebody who's having their first baby is, I, I believe that they're looked at the same as a woman having her third or fourth baby. And if that woman has a breech baby, and even though it's her fourth baby, they don't care, they don't think it's any different than a primate with a breech baby or twins or anything. They, they, they treat them essentially the same. You know, they want them to do all, I mean, we know their labor is going to be faster. Why do they need an IV? Okay. Why do they, you know, what, why, why do we do all the same algorithms that we use for primates? Do we use on breaches? And maybe I'm missing something. Thought about this all week and I really can't figure it out, but, but they are different species. And to do interventions on multips or to take a woman who's had two previous vaginal deliveries and now her third baby is breech and tell her her only option is cesarean section when in skilled hands, her success rate for that breech delivery is close to, well, in my practice, it won't always be that way, but right now it's 100% and you're telling her she needs a C-section. This is crazy. This is, this is crazy. But why should we expect anything different right now? The inmates are running the asylum. We've, you know, we saw it in Congress. We talked about the bill. You know, we see it in our communities. So who's locking down everybody? And then they're going out to dinner and going to their vacation homes. That's another thing too. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Burks, who works with Dr. Fauci, uh, she was busted over Thanksgiving with, you know. A dozen or more people from two different family members and three generations at her vacation home in Delaware. And I heard somebody mocking it. I can't remember who was mocking the idea that why is it always people with vacation homes that are telling people who can barely pay their rent how to live? It's sort of an interesting thing because every one of these people that gets busted pretty much has a vacation home. Governor Whitner, Governor Newsom. Mayor here, mayor there, the mayor of Chicago, the mayor of Denver. Uh, they all they all have <laughs> vacation homes. So we, we we are being we are being led down a path. The the problems in my profession are not because one or two percent of people are choosing to to birth at home, or because a small percentage are re declining hepatitis vaccine, or declining DTaP or flu shot in pregnancy, or declining to have diabetes screening, or declining whatever they're declining, um, or wanting to go past 41 weeks, even though they're a Kaiser patient. Um, these are not the problems. These are not the things that are causing the problems. The problems come from the cascade of interventions and the obtuseness of doing things the same way all the time. 
and not looking at why they do them that way. I talked earlier in the podcast about age 35, all right? Why do doctors still tell women that that's a risk factor? And, why, and, uh, and when you tell someone it's a risk factor, you are creating anxiety and therefore you're creating risk. Um, I guess I'm sort of guilty of it too because I'm telling people who go to the traditional hospital model of birth that they, it, they can, it can lead them into uh, something they don't want. So I'm creating anxiety and fear. But uh, yeah, and I guess, I guess I'm guilty because I'm, I'm trying to bias people into looking at other options. As, as my famous meme always says, home birth is not for everybody, but informed decision-making or informed choice is. And everybody needs to have these options. And when we treat all pregnant women the same, when we have an algorithm for how they're all supposed to be treated, we're not honoring our, um, our, our profession. We're not honoring the women that we serve and um, I don't know how it ends. I really, really don't know how it ends. I would like to see Americans wake up. I think people uh, go back and read uh, the essay from C.S. Lewis and remember at the end and be brave. And if, if this is going to be our end, then, um, then end it with the people you love and doing things you love and not huddling in fear in, in some corner. You know, I'm looking forward to Christmas this year, and it's going to be really limited. It's just going to be me and my ex, who we get along great, and my and my four kids. And that's it. No significant others are going to come. Um, uh, you know, the, you know, no, none of the, you know, the grandparents that are still alive are not going to be there. It's going to be a little gathering, but I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I think that, that we should have these sorts of things, and you should really try hard to um, take with a grain of salt the things we're being told. The press tells us that this is a terrible outbreak and that the ICUs are overrun and that the number, you know, the numbers are 300,000 now and all these things. And it's like, okay, well, let's believe the press because the press has been so reliable and so honest about everything else. Huh? No. The press has been lying to us about everything and suddenly we're supposed to believe them now? The system is really broken because now we have no true source. We can't rely on the government. I don't know that we ever could, but maybe when I was a child that we were more naive, but we can't rely on the government. You can't rely on politicians. You can't rely on the press. You certainly can't rely on big tech to give you factual information anymore. So you have to seek out other sources. Um, I have mine that I think are reliable. And if they ever led me astray, then I would dump them too. But so far, they've never led me astray. Yeah, ITF. Yeah, it's all very, it's all exhausting. It is exhausting. And maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is to just wear us down. I mean, when you're fighting battles on every front, you know, the thing is to surrender. And they win by attrition because it, gets, it becomes overwhelming. Yeah, hang on, there's something here. Oops. Oh, there we go. Yeah, there's something, there's something overwhelming um, about it all. And I don't know. I don't know. I, I've just, you know, part of me look, is looking at other states to move to, and part of me wants to just stay and fight. And it just depends on the day and it depends how, how I feel. Right now I'm in fighting mode uh, to defend um, the people that I've gotten grown to love and know in this community here in Southern California.
So that's going to be my mission for now. Uh, I hope everyone got out to see the, um, what do you call it? The um, conjunction. Uh, it was on the 21st was where they were the closest. And I was out with my binoculars and, you know, my, I think there's either, either I have brownie in motion because, or, or whatever, because the, 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 they look like little sperm swimming around the two planets, but I, you could see them really clearly. And it's going to be on, it's going to be around for a while now, as long as you don't have a cloudy day, as they start to get a little bit, a little bit further apart. Um, astronomical things are cool. And the night I was out on the 21st, I was in uh, the mountains near uh, Agoura Hills, California in Malibu. And it was dark and it was beautiful. And we saw a shooting star. We saw a satellite and we saw the conjunction. We could also see Mars high up in the sky. So three planets and the moon. Half the moon was there. You could see the craters in the moon. It's really kind of cool. So there are wonders out there. You got to get out of your house to see them though. Okay. And the people that were out all gazing, none of us were wearing masks. We were outside. It's really cool. So with that thought, let me uh, say this has been podcast number 194. We're calling it um, <laughs> different species, uh, I think, unless I, I get some vetoes on the name. And uh, you can find us at drstewspodcast.com. You can find us on your smartphone podcast app. You can find us every Wednesday morning. Usually Bliss is, will be here. Uh, Bliss had a birth, which we'll hear all about next week. Uh, you can write to me at askdrstew at gmail.com. I'd love to get your letters. Uh, I got a lot of other letters. I can't read them all. I try to respond to every single one of them. Uh, some of you are messaging me on Facebook, or, excuse me, on Instagram. That's fine, too. I'll get to those eventually as well. Uh, if I don't get to them, it means I probably didn't see them. And again, I appreciate you listening. I know that every week and every day you have so many things that can distract you and so many things to listen to or watch or, or do. That giving us an hour on a Wednesday or an hour, whatever day you're listening, uh, we're honored by that. And we'll try to continue to put out information uh, that's common sense and practical and, um, and make it interesting for you. So until next time, uh, we'll see ya. Okay. And as Bliss would always say, bye-bye.